welcome to Is Tinker Good Law? It's our first panel of the day. My name is Kimberly Robinson, and I'm a professor here at University of Virginia School of Law, and I teach a variety of education law courses, so I'm really excited about the conference today. So I'm gonna introduce our distinguished panel, and then we're gonna start off with some questions about how the law has evolved since the Tinker opinion. So first, to my right, I have Tim Zick, who is the John Marshall Professor of Government and Citizenship at William & Mary Law School. He's the author of four university press books on the First Amendment, so a national expert. Speech Out of Doors, Preserving First Amendment Liberties in Public Places. The Cosmopolitan First Amendment, Protecting Transborder Expressive and Religious Liberties. The Dynamic Free Speech Clause, Free Speech and its Relation to Other Constitutional Rights and the First Amendment in the Trump era. He's also published an array of law review articles on free speech, press and assembly, and is a frequent commentator in local, national, and international media. In 2012, he testified before U.S. House of Representatives subcommittee regarding the First Amendment rights of Occupy Wall Street protesters. Next to him is uh, Professor Emily Gold Waldman, who joined the faculty of the Elizabeth Hobb School of Law at Pace University in 2006, after clerking for the Honorable Robert Katzman on the Second Circuit. She teaches constitutional law, law and education, employment law survey, and civil procedure, and has written a wide array of articles on student speech. She also wrote a chapter on school jurisdiction over students' online speech for the Oxford Handbook of United States K-12 Education Law. And she's the author of the student speech chapter in the casebook I use in my class, Education Law, Equality, Fairness, and Reform. Next to her is Mary Rose Papandrea. She's the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Samuel Ash Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law. She clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice David Souter and worked as an associate at Williams & Connolly in Washington, D.C., where she specialized in First Amendment and media law litigation. Professor Papandrea is the co-author of the case book, Media and the Law. And last but not least, we have our own Manal Chima, who is a third-year UVA law student. She's on the editorial board of the Virginia Law Review and is a submissions review editor for the Virginia Journal of International Law. Her academic interests include First Amendment, national security, and constitutional law issues. So we have a distinguished panel today. All right, so let's jump into talking about Tinker and what it means today. So Tinker talks about, in the opinion, how school officials can reasonably believe that speech will cause a material and substantial interference with school work or discipline and are permitted to regulate speech if they reasonably believe this. So I'm particularly interested in panelists' comments on how have the lower courts interpreted this material and substantial interference and are they giving too little, too much deference, just about the right amount of deference? How are courts handling this interference? Because that is at the heart of the tinker, tinker language. If I may, I'll start. Um, first of all, I just want to thank the Law Review, especially Laura Tolmay, Mika Carlin, and Maggie Boos for giving me the opportunity to sit on this panel with these esteemed faculty. Um, and I also would like to thank so many friends here in this room and beyond for working through these issues with me. So as it's clear, I'm not the professor on this panel, but I have read Tinker, and I think there are three different ways Tinker could have been understood, and there is one way in which the lower courts have decided to take it. Um, Justin Driver, um, who writes, who has published a recent book, The Schoolhouse Gate, and um, Professor Papandrea discussed this in their pieces, but um, Tinker, as Professor Robinson said, is currently understood to apply the standard of reasonable foreseeable in the school officials' mindsets as to leading to material or substantial disruption. But there are two different ways Tinker could have been understood. It could have been understood as leading to actual interference by um, when, so when the student speaks, whether or not their actions lead to actual interference of school, the school environment. Um, and that can either be understood as actual interference by other students such as a student's speech may unduly agitate other students leading to a substantial disruption, or that the speaker's own actual actions 
are substantially interfering with the school environment. And those two latter situations are the paths that courts have not taken. They have primarily focused on the reasonable foreseeable standard, which I think we can debate and discuss in the rest of this panel as to whether or not that's a really good idea and whether or not it's speech protective of students. And I would argue it's probably the most speech restrictive standard that courts have taken. Um, so Tinker promised or suggested it could have been become more speech protective, but that unfortunately has not happened. I'll follow up since you mentioned me. Um, and I, it's an honor to be here with you. It's so exciting to see the next generation coming and this is gonna be a long and beautiful friendship. So, um, so I, I think you're exactly right the, to focus on this, um, the deference that Tinker opens up. Um, I don't know as I write in my little piece. I, I'm not sure that that's what the justices had in mind when they wrote um, that there would be, you know, that, that, that speech could be um, curtailed when there was a reasonable um, uh, uh, prediction. Uh, there clearly wasn't a problem in Tinker. Like the facts of Tinker so clearly um, uh, demonstrated there was not going to be a substantial disruption. So it's hard to know exactly what the court meant in Tinker when it said um, that uh, th about this uh, basically prediction. Um, but what we've seen is the lower courts really defer to the predictions of school officials. And this is uh, uh, you know something we see in other areas as well with um, government employees, and national security, you know, where the courts feel like these are special areas, they don't have expertise to know exactly what's going on in schools, um, and why not to, uh, prison wardens to also get deference, you know, like let's defer to people who are on the ground and actually can see what's going on. And um, it's just so different, for, as Professor Shower's outlining in his talk, it's so different from what we see in other context in the First Amendment where this idea that you would defer um, so extraordinarily to government officials, these are government actors, um, to me I, is, uh, is, is bananas. But that's you know, kind of what we see the lower courts do. I agree. And I think especially when you have speech that has any component that could be seen as threatening or violent. That's where the deference is really at its height, um, especially post-Columbine, right? You see Columbine invoked in so many lower court speech cases where you have any student saying something, you know, even the student says it was a joke, but something about, you know, I want to kill this person. I might bring a bomb. T almost total deference to the school. And you see that general idea repeated that schools don't have to wait for the disruption to occur. They have to be able to step in once they think a disruption might occur. So there's a lot of deference, and I don't think there's really any division among the lower courts on the idea that you might have to wait for actual disruption. They all cite each other and saying you don't have to wait for that. The question is whether the forecast is reasonable. I think in some sense it'd be surprising if it were otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, disruption is a really slippery uh, uh, concept to begin with, and although Americans talk a lot about freedom of speech and freedom of expression and their tolerance of disruption, it really isn't so. Uh, most of my work is not about student speech, it's about protest and public speech. And there are quotes you can grab from Supreme Court precedents about the high purposes of disruptive speech, but the reality is uh, in America, we still like our protest orderly. We'd prefer not to be disrupted. Uh, you can protest uh, civil rights, but don't kneel. Uh, also, don't be too loud. Um, so it would shock me if, if this disruption standard had turned into some um, really uh, protective free speech standard, especially in the school context, where then you're now layering in the sort of deference that uh, courts would likely show anyway to school administrators and educators. So uh, that's not to say that I, I think Tinker's a bad case or uh, that it's bad law. Normatively, I think it's a really good thing. Um, but in the hands of courts, I'm, I'm not shocked at all that it's become sort of tool of deference for uh, educators. And I just wanted to mention, so I'm going to ask a, a series of questions, but I hope that the audience also, after we're, do, we're done with, I've done with Q&A, that you all will also have some questions. So I just hope you'll be thinking about what your questions are. So it sounds like the lower courts are in agreement about 
allowing substantial deference to anticipate when there will be a disruption. Are there any circuit splits in the lower court regarding Tinker, how Tinker should be applied, particularly as it intersects with Hazelwood and, um, you know, Morris v. Frederick, can we talk about how the lower courts are um, perhaps disagreeing about Tinker, or is everyone sort of singing on the same, you know, song sheet? Emily, she looked at you. I think, <laughs> I think you'd be the best, best person to tackle that first. Um, so on the issue of whether you have to wait for disruption, I don't think there's a split. One place where I do see some splits under the surface is when you get into exactly how Tinker applies to students' online speech, their off-campus speech. So here, too, like big picture, I think there's a pretty strong consensus among the lower courts to use Tinker, and in particular Tinker, not Frazier, um, but Tinker as the test for whether schools can restrict students' off-campus speech. That they say, if the speech is likely to reach the school and cause a substantial disruption there, that's both the jurisdictional hook and the substantive hook for schools to be able to regulate it. I think there's a bit of a split in terms of what circuits think amounts to a substantial disruption. The particular split I'm thinking of is between the Second Circuit and the Third Circuit. Um, there's a case that you might be familiar with in the Second Circuit, Doninger versus Niehoff, where you had um, this girl in student council who refers to administrators as douchebags and tells people to contact um, the administrators. And the Second Circuit thought there was, that did amount to substantial disruption, at least in terms of telling the student she couldn't be on student council. The Third Circuit had um, a case, um, JS versus Blue Mountain School District, where you had speech that was really targeting an administrator in a much harsher way, making up this fake profile, saying that the student, all sorts of sexual, all sorts of sexual things about the teacher, being a pervert, things like that, that didn't seem at all based in reality. And the Third Circuit actually said that didn't amount to a substantial disruption. I think there's a little bit of a split there. I think you have a situation where speech that wasn't as disruptive, the Second Circuit thought was disruptive, and you had speech that was arguably more disruptive, where the Third Circuit said it didn't need that. So I think you have circuits citing the same standard, but then under the surface, there's some divergence in what they think rises to the level of a disruption. And you, you do highlight um, quite appropriately, Emily, uh, although you went through it pretty quickly, that the courts, lower courts, don't seem to apply Bethel to um, yes, the online. They, they which, agree on that. Thank God for high school students yeah. because this would mean any lewd speech or swear words or anything. I mean, they'd all be, you know, expelled. Um, so, so it's a good thing. But, uh, but the Tinker test, there's some concurring opinions, dissenting opinions out there that call into question whether even Tinker should sort of wholesale be imported to the online context. I mean, this is where con law just gets so fun, where things change. And um, the early cases, although some of the you know, pre-internet cases were dealing with underground student newspapers and that sort of thing, we certainly had a whole bunch of off-campus speech. Um, when you start talking about online uh, speech, the geographic boundaries, it becomes a lot less, makes a lot less sense to talk in terms of those kinds of things. There might be something to be said about it, but it really challenges the the framework, um, and and so what counts as a substantial disruption is is really challenging because um, a lot of speech can get people angry, and and in fact sometimes the very best speech gets people upset and um, and jams the phone lines at school and causes school administrators to have to react. Um, is that going to be enough for a substantial disruption? And you know again, I just harken back to traditional First Amendment doctrine of the heckler's veto is still um, considered a problem, that we don't try to uh, punish speakers when they get a react, when an audience disagrees with them. But in the school context, you know, we do see this disagreement about whether that sort of reaction from the audience is sufficient to count as a disruption. And maybe it is because it's a school, but it's just, it is attention. Right, and just to tease out the two points that Professor Waldman and Professor Papandrea make, there's a jurisdictional issue here, so what counts as in the schoolhouse gates? So when one of you posts something on Instagram or Twitter that may involve a school issue, whether it's uh, making a comment that's not so nice about a superintendent or making a comment about one of your peers that is racially motivated, does the reaction that ha that is caused by that count as material and substantial disruption? even though that was on a private platform 
that you may have posted in the privacy of your own home? I think that's a real question that courts are going to have to figure out. And then the second thing is um, what po Professor Papandrea brought up, the concept of a heckler's veto. Should your speech rights be curtailed because your speech elicited a negative reaction from someone else? And you could think about it in this way. So if some, a student brought, wore a, um, a very politically charged t-shirt to school and the school believed that that would lead to a material substantial disruption, could you prevent that student from wearing that shirt? And we have a very close geographic um, example of that in Albemarle School um, in the Albemarle County High School. Uh, they banned students from wearing uh, apparel that had a Confederate flag on it, and there was a student who wore a PCAP with a Confederate flag on it, and he was appropriately punished for that because the school factored in the context of how Virginia has been resistant to um, uh, anti-slavery efforts or segregation efforts, and because of that context, they said it was reasonably foreseeable that wearing a Confederate flag at a school would lead to disruption. Um, for some people, that's a really great thing, but we can think about a lot of in other instances in which we may not like the consequences of that. Do you, I'm sorry, I'm going out of order, but if I could just jump in on that. Um, I do think there's also some tensions about trying to figure out whether the forecast is reasonable, and the Confederate cases are a great, Confederate flag cases are a great example. There's the Fourth Circuit decision, which allowed the district to consider um, several decades of history um, involving uh, turmoil around the Confederate flag and not sort of more current history, um, which is very interesting to me because you can always find some, I mean, if you're in the South, and I'm coming from Chapel Hill, so, um, you know, there, well, we have some really recent history. But anyway, so um, you can always find um, in the last 50, 60 years, you will find um, that there's been conflict, and, and also particularly if you say it doesn't have to just be conflict in the school, it can be just conflict in the area, um, then you really are, you just give a lot more deference to the school officials. Now again, I think a lot of people, the majority of people, I'm going to, I don't know, I think that's safe to say, are a fan of these bans. Um, uh, I testified before at Orange County School Board and they were considering a similar ban. Um, there was no evidence in Orange County that there had been any incidences um, involving the Confederate flag. I'm not even sure anyone had worn the Confederate flag to school, but nevertheless, this is about two or three years ago, and I think there was a, a concern about making a statement, like the school board wants to make a statement um, about equality and, um, and that this is not going to be tolerated. And so, and, and we may all applaud that statement. Um, but it isn't, it's really getting far afield from the tinker requirement that there be some substantial disruption because there hadn't been any evidence of substantial disruption um, that they could point to, even, even with that looser Fourth Circuit standard. But they, they, they passed that anyway. Um, and it may never be challenged because nobody's doing it. Uh, but it's there and it is, an, it is a statement, um, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that people are talking a lot about t-shirts and apparel. You could actually hang out a shingle and have a practice devoted to student t-shirt and other apparel issues in the First Amendment uh, area. You wouldn't make a lot of money uh, <laughs> doing that. Um, but th these cases arise all the time. So does a student who wears an American flag t-shirt on Cinco de Mayo cause disruption in the schools, uh, LGBTQ, a positive and negative speech on t-shirts, pro-life and pro-choice speech on t-shirts. And one of the things that the disruption standard might do is it pushes school officials to impose content bans. Uh, that's just the safest thing to do, but of course that rules out uh, lots of political speech and things you would probably want students to be uh, debating matters of public concern. Um, so I, I, I do notice a lot, you know, I follow a lot of the news and the cases and a lot of them seem to be about uh, something as seemingly insignificant as what's on a t-shirt and it seems like the default position of most school administrators is to, um, to, to nip that in the bud, to, to say you have to turn that inside out, you have to change your shirt uh, or you're going to be uh, suspended. Um, so it, it, it's, um, it's an interesting um, contextual matter to think about what these cases are all about. Um, on one hand, they're about very serious matters of political speech, and on the other, 
They may be, as Professor Schauer was mentioning, uh, sophomoric uh, antics. And it, it's very hard to tell the difference in some of these cases. So just thinking about those cases a bit, and, and then I want to return to the social media point. But in thinking about those cases, I wonder, are we losing in our schools the ability to teach students to engage across difference when we take when we allow schools to take these positions sort of ban anything controversial are we failing to enable and equip students to say i disagree with you and here's why where do we draw the line between help where should courts draw the line and schools draw the line between and this is not a legal question but more of a policy question between you know allowing students to express themselves and teaching students to express a disagreement with that or crossing the line to say no this is this this t-shirt or this hat or this other thing sort of goes so far that it's going to cause you know perhaps fights to break out or things like that how can educators draw that line and how should courts help guide educators in drawing that line so I think Hazelwood answers that question for you so Hazelwood was a case that followed Tinker and it focused specifically on school-sponsored speech, so what happens in the classroom or in relation to classroom activities. And there, um, the court decided that as long as it is reasonably related to a legitimate pedagogical purpose or goal, the school officials may restrict student speech, or as my paper, which deals on um, religious curriculum, may compel students to speak on a particular matter. So, so courts have I think um, generally accepted the fact that it is all right for professors to have students argue just like Justice Scalia, even if they disagree with um, his opinions vehemently, as they can ask a student to argue like Justice Ginsburg. And so the legitimate, the way a legitimate pedagogical goal is thought of is promoting those uh, goals as pluralism, learning how to think in viewpoints that are contrary to your own. And in that classroom setting or in relation to those classroom or school-sponsored exercises, even down to a school-sponsored newspaper, I think that's where even more deference is granted towards the school officials to achieve exactly what Professor Robinson's question was asking. I think it's a really important question because I do think that is not something schools should give up on. I don't think they should, well, you can't talk about that. That's going to be too controversial. I think it's really important for them to leave space for students to do that. I do think a distinction can be drawn and it gets fuzzy between speech that's like personally attacking a particular student and speech that's more generally commenting on a social or political issue, even if that speech might be hurtful to a student. I think that distinction is something that's really important for schools to emphasize and that they need to make room for the latter, the discussion, even if it can be controversial, but still making sure that they're protecting individual students from being sort of singled out for personal attack. Um, when I was getting ready for this conference, I was looking at what has happened with Tinker um, in the past year. And I saw this case that really shocked me coming out of um, Alabama, where you had a school district um, after the 2016 election, they said students were really upset, it was very controversial, and so the school administrators told the students they couldn't talk about the results of the election except in history class. Oh, With the idea they couldn't even, I mean, it's one thing to say you're not going to talk about it in math class, but they said, you know, just no talking about it in general, and that was actually upheld by a district judge, which was, what, what had happened was then a student wrote Trump 2016 on, like, a whiteboard of a teacher, and that's a different thing. You can say don't write on the whiteboard, but the idea that it was okay to tell, well, this election was very controversial, so now people can't talk about it. Is that it. an appeal? I think it must be. I, I haven't looked, but I was shocked that they pulled it, and to add insult to injury, we're not talking about it, but then the punishment, they had corporal punishment in the school. Oh, Jesus. So the kid <laughs> actually got two licks for having written um, Trump 2016, but I was fascinated by the idea that that policy, they said, well, they forecast substantial disruption because oh there was a lot of unrest after the election, and I mean, that's mm -hmm. crazy. Students have to be able to talk about those things, um, certainly on their own, you know, in hallways, in the cafeteria, things like that. I, I also This agree. just happened like a few months ago, so oh, I don't okay. know yeah, what's right. it's happening. Hard to know. Yeah, but yeah. I was shocked. I do, um, I do think that, that schools could more often see things as a teaching moment rather than a moment to punish. I, I, that's how I took your question, and um, I, I, I'm a big fan of counter speech. Um, 
and, and not just because I'm a blind adherent to the marketplace of ideas, although maybe I could be accused of that, but I, um, I, uh, I, I just think that you're, you're dealing with students, they could be, they are, especially K through 12, but in, in perhaps even more so in the university setting where it's, it, it's about learning and um, learning why the speech is hurtful, why, why is that speech harmful, rather than simply expelling someone or punishing them. It's, <laughs> hitting them, um, you know, actually talking about it, having some, um, you know, community opportunity, community discussions, um, these kinds of things could be much more beneficial because typically this speech, it could be that it's just sophomoric speech and it's just immaturity, um, like the bong hits for Jesus case. I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, don't talk about nonsense. I mean, um, but, you know, in, uh, in, in the, the cases that involve the more serious, um, you know, equality concerns like Nazi speech or um, Confederate flags and that sort of thing. Um, some people may not realize why they're being so hurtful. They're young, they may just be imitating grown-ups and it's a really great opportunity to teach them, you know, for the whole community to come together and, and talk about what's going on. Yeah, a couple of points. Um, the Kuhlmeyer standards always bothered me. Um, reasonably related to legitimate pedagogical concerns sounds an awful lot like the prison standard of reasonably related to legitimate penological <laughs> concerns. Um, and so for that reason alone, the optics of that standard have always have bothered me. Of course, the schools have authority over uh, curricular matters uh, as they should. Um, I'm not sure it, be, it should be some kind of rational basis standard that applies and Tinker uh, we often think of Tinker as a student speech case, and it is, but the court also mentions teachers. It says neither students nor teachers shed their rights at the schoolhouse gate. And so one sort of unclear aspect of, of this conversation is to what extent do principles of academic freedom apply in the K through 12 context and, and, and on campus as well. It's uncertain to some extent there too. So teachers clearly do have uh, in the curricular context uh, the right to express themselves, the right to develop curriculum, um, and part of that should be educating students about how to talk to one another about difficult uh, subjects. And my final point, there's a link between uh, the Tinker context and the K-12 through context and obviously campus speech, college campuses I'm thinking of now, universities and colleges. And I'm the co-chair of a, an ad hoc committee on First Amendment rights on campus, it's a really long title for a very important committee, I think. And what we're trying to figure out at William & Mary is whether our policies are consistent with the First Amendment, but more than that, so whether they're consistent with the educational mission of the school, uh, whether they're consistent with principles of inclusion uh, for a, a diverse student body and all of those things. And one of the problems we've had uh, at our school, and I, hope, and I know at other schools, is uh, invited speakers who are disrupted who come to talk to students, uh, infamously on my campus, the ACLU came to talk to students post-Charlottesville about freedom of speech and were shut down uh, by a group of students who not just yelled and disrupted but actually moved toward the stage uh, and, and engaged in, in conduct as well. So I think this is a critically important issue, a really complicated one. How, how do you get students to, um, to tolerate a disruption, to tolerate difference? It's too late, in my view, on college campuses to be teaching that. We have to be teaching that to much younger students. And if we continue to sort of keep these, keep controversial messages out, then we definitely lose out on that opportunity. So Manal, I wanted to follow up on your comment about Hazelwood and compelled speech. So you write about this in your piece in the Law Review. Can you tell us about why you think Hazelwood is appropriate for that? We just heard mm -hmm. a, a criticism of Hazelwood, of mm -hmm. this idea of being reasonably related to legitimate pedagogical concerns. So that's a very loose standard, sort of very lenient. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know that could certainly, if you apply it to compelled speech, really can require students to participate in um, having to say things as part of a lesson that they may vehemently disagree with. Why do you think that that's the appropriate standard given that? Right, so just to give everyone a brief background of what inspired this piece, there's a, there was a case in the Fourth Circuit, Wood versus Arnold, where a uh, student, Miss Wood, um, she was in 11th grade, was given an assignment. It was a fill in the blank exercise on, and it was during her world religions curriculum. So the fill in the blank exercise was on Islam 
in particular, in particular the Ms. Wood had to fill in the blanks of the Shahada, which is the Muslim Declaration of Faith. It said after, during every prayer, it's a very important um, declaration, and it's one of the five pillars of Islam. So she had to fill in, um, so the, it translates to, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So she had to fill in the first Allah and then messenger, so two words. And her father and Miss Wood herself found it problematic that she was being compelled to speak in her mind in favor of Islam in this exercise. So she brought the case in the Fourth Circuit. Uh, the Fourth Circuit denied it on summary judgment. And my entire piece is trying to figure out what is the standard that should apply to this particular case, compelled speech. So as I described earlier, Hazelwood um, gives school officials the authority to restrict student speech on its facts. So in that particular case, a principal was allowed to cut out two pages of a, news, a student newspaper uh, that discussed teen pregnancy and divorce. Um, and the court adopted this standard in that particular case that uh, Professor Zick does not love the wording for. Um, so my particular situation was, how do I answer this question? What is the standard that courts should adopt? And so there are two options in this case that the circuits are trying to figure out. The first one is under a case that preceded Tinker Barnett, um, which some of you may have read in your religious liberties class or uh, First Amendment class. And it's about no student should be compelled to recite to speak on a particular idea. So there are two Jehovah Witnesses. This is a lot of background, but there were two Jehovah Witnesses who were asked to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, um, and they took issue with that. So the court decided that it's fine to sit out of that. So Barnett is one standard for Tinker, and Hazelwood is the next standard about reasonable related to legitimate pedagogical concerns. And I take, I understand that it's a very loose, rational basis standard. Um, but there is a way to interpret reasonably related, and there is a way to interpret legitimate pedagogical concerns in light of Barnett in this particular in these particular situations that I think can be protective of student speech rights and also balance the school's need to control its uh, its curriculum. There's as many of these First Amendment cases show there is a balancing act between those two interests that the courts have to figure out because a, any professor should be able to control what they're teaching in class. And you don't want students to be able to veto every single lesson plan for um, whatever grievance they have against it because then I don't think you get to see these uh, get exposed to controversial viewpoints. I don't think we have the Miss Woods of the world see um, learn about minority religions that do not have a favored place in this country. On the other hand, students and parents do have expectations when they send them, when they go to school and when they send their children to school that needs to be respected. So I look at a few scholars, Professor Shauna Schifrin, Professor James Ryan, who's currently the president of UVA, to kind of interpret um, Hazelwood's standard in a way that I think is protective of student speech rights, but also deferential to schools. So. Uh I'm interested in the other panelists' thoughts about compelled speech, sort of you know requiring students as part of their education to speak and perhaps say things that are con you know contradict what their core beliefs are. Do you think that Manal has adopted the appropriate standard, or do you um, think there should be a different standard applied to that? Well, it's interesting too with religious speech. Sometimes you have other clauses coming into yes. play. Like right. sometimes you can have a free exercise mm -hmm. issue where someone says, you know, I feel like. My exercise of my religion is being infringed because my religion prevents me from saying this other thing. Um, what's interesting to me too is it often feels in those sorts of cases that there's so much that the school could do to just sort of ameliorate the issue, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know how that particular exercise was phrased. But so if the teacher, rather than having the student just say like, I believe this, but say like the five pillars of in the five pillars of Islam, right. Muslims believe this. Something so that the student doesn't feel in any way that she personally is being asked to affirm something that mm -hmm. she doesn't believe. It feels like there's, yeah. there are easy ways to respond to those sorts right. of concerns. So um, there's, it's how things are phrased, of course, but I think that the 
courts, so there's a particular case, Brendan said, where students were required as part of a language exercise to stand up and recite the Mexican Pledge of Allegiance and salute the Mexican flag. And that was considered under the Hazelwood standard appropriate as a classroom learning exercise. And the Brindinson court found it particularly important that it was a singular event, that it was for educational value, and no one was asked to actually affirm Mexican nationalism. And so the courts are doing this really tough balancing exercise. And then to your first point about um, other constitutional rights playing in, Professor Zek has a, two great books about this. I'm going to let him talk about it. But it's a concept of hybrid rights. And, courts really struggle with this. So if you have like an untenable first, first free exercise right and an untenable free speech right, do them combine together equal a tenable case? Um, some courts say no. Professor Schwartzman would also say no too. Usually not. <laughs> Usually not. Um, I, I won't go into length about that. Just one book, right? Uh, and an article about it. Uh, uh, rights dynamism is what I call it, just to give it a label. Um, and in contexts like uh, this case, free exercise and free speech combined. They combined in Barnett, too. Barnett was actually a religion case and a free speech case. It's just better known today as a, as a freedom of speech uh, precedent. Um, I, too, am critical of the hybrid rights. Uh, two rights are better than one uh, theory. Um, that came out of uh, Employment Division versus Smith, which is a free exercise case. And long story short, um, it was done, I think, to preserve precedents that couldn't otherwise be preserved under the rule of Smith. So uh, it, it doesn't get you very far. Um, in, in the context of, of compelled speech, though, you, you have to have a dictated message. It has to be associated with the person who's claiming to be compelled. There has to be a likelihood that that's how uh, an audience would, would see it, and there has to be no opportunity to disassociate yourself from uh, the speech in question. I think the compelled speech standard works pretty well uh, in, this, in the case you're talking about and in others. There is an, there's an interesting case uh, that was recently filed in the Commonwealth um, that raises a similar compelled speech issue. And this uh, complaint arises from uh, the compelled wearing of a school uniform that has uh, as its mascot the rebel. Um, and the school has a long history of sort of adopting that uh, from, you know, sort of not Jim Crow, but uh, segregation era uh, history. And the complaint alleges that forcing students to wear that uniform, that symbol, African American students are their claimants, um, violates their right not to be compelled to support what's in essence, or at least for them, a racist. Uh, symbol. Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was so good I used it on an exam. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it raises an interesting issue. I, I don't think the claim succeeds, right, for reasons I'm happy to talk about. Um, but I, I think it's, a, it, it's, it's another indication that the compelled speech uh, doctrine is making its way into uh, these student speech cases and the courts are going to have to reckon with it. What was like that cheerleader case where Remember the one in oh, the yeah. Fifth Circuit where she had to cheer um, even though one of the players was uh, accused, her accused rapist, I think. Do you remember this? Ooh. I feel like you wrote, a, you didn't I, write about it. Okay, sorry. I think it was a student of mine who wrote yeah. about it. Um, interesting. And she lost uh, before the Fifth Circuit. Um, they, and they said if she wanted to be a cheerleader, she had to cheer for all the time for all the players and she couldn't opt out. And, and that, um, you know, for her obviously was personally very upsetting. But I, I'm wondering, Tim, do you think it's because in a lot of these cases there actually isn't compelled speech, like given the definition that you listed of? Yeah, given the yep. standard, I think it'd be hard to argue the uniform compels or dictates a message in the same way that, say, the license plate live free or die did or the compulsory uh, flag salute. Um, in part, you know, that's, it's not likely to be associated with the individual student. It's the mascot of the school, and in that case, the school emblazons, it's in building and other things with the mascot. So it's likely not to be associated with the student. There is no real opportunity to disassociate. I'm assuming you can't just wear a blank shirt and go onto the field play uh, or stand on the sidelines and, and scream your uh, dissent. Um, so in that sense, it's a little bit tricky, but I, I thought it was, it was close enough um, to generate um, 
could generate some good answers and it served that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Zick, that's kind of why I don't rely solely on the compelled speech standard. So my argument is that you, if you just rely on the compelled speech standard, if you just rely on Barnett the, and the analysis ends, then you can end up in situations like this where it's very clear that the student isn't being forced to say the view is not associated with them. But then by applying Hazelwood to kind of hold teachers to account by just making them take the extra step of defending mm -hmm. their decision to do this as a legitimate pedagogical concern. And I know that's a very vague, vague standard. And I know that it's been interpreted to include a plethora of things that may not immediately count as pedagogical. I think by taking that extra step, we can kind of push the standard to be more protective of student rights. And there are folks who disagree with me, but that's the position I take in my paper. And I think that makes a lot of good sense too, right? Um, for purposes of um, our classroom exercises, I don't know about the other panelists, but um, I make a point of saying you, you don't have to um, agree with the argument you're going to make. I'm assigning you to make it. Right? I'm going to make clear that you can't go after this student for making the argument that's about to be presented because it's not hers. Um, it's a matter of the pedagogical exercise of getting all the arguments on the table. So I think that actually makes good sense. I don't like the standard because of how it can be applied in other contexts, right? right? Including the one that says school administrators can completely excise articles on divorce and teen pregnancy. Uh, not limit them or address the concerns that people might have had about uh, privacy or the, the rights of parents to respond to what's being written about them, that would have been an appropriate response in my view. Provide them that opportunity instead of giving the administrators carte blanche to just say, you're not going to have this subject, which both of them are extremely important to students of, of that age, right, mm -hmm. addressed in your school newspaper. I agree, and I've always thought that it's not so much a problem with the Hazelwood standard itself, but how it's applied. Like that really what happened there was not reasonably related to legitimate pedagogical concerns. And I was just thinking here, this is probably not that brilliant a thought, but I, because I'm academic uh, dean, I have to deal with accommodation issues, and um, we often have to think about whether, you know, requiring attendance in school, for example, in classes. In law school, we do require attendance. Is that um, surveys that a pedagogical purpose and my understanding is there's a lot of uh, very close certain uh, scrutiny of, of the asserted pedagogical need for certain types of requirements um, in a way that there, there clearly isn't under the Hazelwood standard. It's just a total right, uh, very be, deferential yeah, um, there should be more. deference to the school. Let's talk a little bit about the Fraser case. Um, so this case involved a student giving an offensive speech to a large group of students who were required to be in attendance. And so the court there said that school officials could definitely impose sanctions or punishments in response to offensively lewd and indecent speech. And so um, they also said that you, the court can regulate speech if it's going to undermine the school's educational mission. So here again, you see the trend after Tinker is a lot of deference to school officials. Um, and you, um, uh, Professor Poppinger, write about uh, that this deference is more appropriate in the classroom than it is on the playground or cafeteria or respect, with respect to speech online. So can you talk a little bit about why oh, you Oh yeah, well, um, what I was highlighting in my piece is that we often hear um, those who are in favor of giving more deference to school say, well, of course the normal rules of the First Amendment don't apply to schools, and univer you know, including universities. They have to make all sorts of content-based decisions all the time what books to assign, what courses to have, what books to assign, what, what assignments to have the students do. I mean, their content-based determinations routinely, uh, hiring, um, you know, is something worthy of tenure, you know, all, all, all the time. And, um, and I agree that that is true, but it only goes so far. And what I push back on is that there aren't the same kinds of um, uh, necessarily content-based decisions once you get outside of the classroom setting. Um, and that's, that's where I get really worried. And Frazier itself was a um, student election forum where, you know, a student, talk about sophomoric humor, I mean classic, where he uses some sort of sexual, like I'm going to push it to the wall until there's a climb, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> you know, very sophomoric, not obscene, um, just sophomoric and sexually, you know, suggestive. And 
um, the court allows the school to prohibit and punish the student for that speech. And um, it, it, you know, I don't, I don't see that that, just because you allow schools to make decisions about the courses and the professors and what's assigned, I, I just don't think you, it needs to bleed over and say that therefore every single thing relating to students they get to control. Yeah, and that really, did you want to comment? Yeah, I, I've, I've been the panel curmudgeon so far. I haven't liked any standards or cases <laughs> or anything. It's good to um, hear. We need one. I actually yeah, see a, a silver lining in the bong hits for Jesus case in this regard. Um, so if you, if you read it closely, I mean, the, putting aside that the speech seemed to say nothing at all, I, I agree it was nonsense, but um, maybe it suggested Jesus would do bong hits. I don't know. Um, it, should that be prescribable? I, I think that case is more about drugs than speech, and I think uh, the Fraser case is more about sex than uh, freedom of speech. Or there's just certain things that trigger uh, Supreme Court justices and make them, uh, you know, issue decisions that maybe they shouldn't have. But here's what the court said in in, uh, in Morse versus Frederick about the Fraser standard, um, because. The argument was made that all offensive speech should be regulable, right? Uh, and here's what the court said. Petitioners urge us to adopt the broader rule that Frederick's speech is proscribable because it, it is plainly offensive, as the term is used in Frazier. We think this stretches Frazier too far. That case should not be read to encompass any speech that could fit under some definition of offensive. After all, much political and religious speech might be perceived as offensive to some. The concern here is not that Frederick's speech was offensive, but that it was reasonably viewed as promoting illegal drug use. And then the court went on seemingly to reject the government's argument, the United States' argument, which was you should allow schools to regulate based on, quote, educational mission. If it impacts the school's educational mission, the speech can be regulated and may be proscribed. Uh, Justice Alito in his concurrence said this, the opinion of the court does not endorse the broad argument advanced by petitioners and the United States that the First Amendment permits public school officials to censor any student speech that interferes with a school's educational mission. Uh, and I think his particular concern would be, well, if, if that's true, then schools can inculcate uh, from the left, right? And we don't want that. And you also don't want them to inculcate uh, ideas uh, from the right. You don't want them suppressing speech to serve some political ends. So I see Morse as a positive case in both of those regards, because those are arguments that school officials and government officials are likely to make. Offensive speech should be out, and speech that in interrupts with or interferes with our educational mission should be regulated. I agree. I think Morse was very narrow. And I actually am not as concerned by Frazier either, in that it was, if it, ha if it had applied to a student who was just talking out you know, at lunch or in the cafeteria or something like that, I would be concerned that the school is getting so involved in the weeds of what students are saying to each other sort of on their off time when they're just communicating. Here it was a school assembly um, that all of the other students were required to sit through. And I do think there, I'm sympathetic to the school wanting to have more oversight in what is said. And I do see how, you know, there, there were a lot of students apparently like hooting and howling and they thought it was all great and funny, but I'm sure there were a lot of students who also felt really uncomfortable where you have someone up there talking about, vote for this guy because he's gonna, you know, nail it against the wall and he won't stop till there's a climax. I think schools do have a role to play there in saying, you know what, not at a school assembly that everybody has to be at, that that's not really appropriate. You know, it wasn't a case where they were trying to suppress, you know, a message that was critical of the school or some sort of real dissent. So that one doesn't bother me as much as I think it bothers well, I, you. I thought my, my major point though was simply that just because schools obviously have the need to make content-based decisions in the classroom. It should not be that they have this carte blanche I agree. to they make content-based decisions yeah. elsewhere. Um, yeah, I really, I also, I agree. We, we agree. We don't really. Um, yeah. Sometimes. Um, let's have more disagreement. Uh, uh -huh. uh, that, uh, that Morse was important. I, doesn't, is it um, Robert's writing for the majority? Doesn't he actually say, like, we're not exactly sure what the rationale with Frazier was? I thought that was pretty. Yes remarkable yeah. um, right. because there was some debate about whether Frazier was an application of the substantial disruption test, yeah. right? Because there was some reaction to the speech and it made people feel uncomfortable. Um, but it also didn't really feel like an application of that test. It seemed like a standalone yeah. kind of test. And, and Robert's like, we're not exactly sure what we meant when we said that, which I thought was a pretty remarkable admission. 
One comment I'd like to make about Frazier is that it was political speech. He was speaking in favor of nominating another student for student council. And I think that to me seems a little bit more problematic for a school to regulate because of how we uh, put political speech on a pedestal in other circumstances. So that's my only, that was my concern with Frazier. I think it's a fair point, but they weren't really, he wasn't really giving any political message. But, the person was running for office, but right. what he was punished for was not saying anything political. But I think the context, like, mm -hmm. if the school can regulate how a student nominates another student, I think, like, I don't disagree with you, Professor Waldman. I think that there, it's not as problematic as other circumstances. But I do think that it does open up, like, a, a conversation, if not a slight slippery slope, into uh, diminishing student rights and how they are, active, like, being activists and how they choose to represent their messages. Because what the student did was quite creative. He very deliberately used uh, sexual innuendo the entire time without ever using vulgar language beforehand. So it's he was intentional in every single word of that one minute speech and there was a lot of pushback afterwards and I think the fact that Chief Justice Roberts in, in a nominalist fashion did admit critically of a prior Supreme Court decision that we don't know what standard was actually used I think is remarkable. Yeah, and just to support my new best friend here, um, you know, it, the Cohen versus California it protects fuck the draft, and he didn't even say the word fuck, mm -hmm. right? So I don't, I don't think. He did not. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that, and that, the court very much said because, um, you know, and that's political speech, and, and it can be nasty, and, like, we need to protect it, so just to yeah. support you. No, I think that's right, and I think that's actually part of why Roberts in Worth used the language that you mentioned really trying to narrow Frazier. Like that was about stuff that was lewd and, and it, it shouldn't be read as endorsing some broader principle that schools can just suppress anything that they think is contrary to their educational mission or anything that's broadly speaking offensive. They're trying to really narrow it to that more like sexual context. All right, so I'm gonna throw out one last question and then I'm gonna open up to the audience for a question. So Professor Papandrea, you wrote in your essay that the court has not been very clear about whether children have First Amendment expressive rights or what, or what any such rights look like. So I'd like to hear from all the panelists, sort of, what should those rights look like? How should courts be interpreting them? What lines should be drawn for student speech rights inside the schoolhouse gate? Um, and then, um, our lower courts are striking the right balance. We've heard a lot about deference throughout this discussion, and that is definitely how um, many of the subsequent cases to Tinker have been interpreted. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that, and then I'll open it up for questions. Yeah, just to um, uh, flesh out a little bit of what yeah. I said, um, the year before Tinker was decided, the court decided Ginsburg versus New York, where it said that children, whatever First Amendment rights children have, they were not the same as adults. And, um, and, and then there was no reconciliation of that in Tinker. So even though Tinker has some very soaring language about the importance of free speech, and of course it's in the context of minors, it comes right after that, that statement. Um, and there have been other, if you look at other cases involving minors, very often the cases look like they're protecting minors from being exposed to speech of others um, and protecting the rights of parents to um, control the upbringing of their of their kids and and it's a lot less and, and, and often never about the rights of the students themselves and so that was what I was highlighting that without a really robust foundation for appreciating what the rights of students are um, outside the schoolhouse gates then what does it mean to say that they have rights inside this is exactly what professor shower was saying in his opening remarks you know it sounds awesome to say like they do not shed their First Amendment rights. Well, if they don't have any before they walk in there, then it's not super meaningful. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, you know, especially in, with Greta, um, the environmental activist, you know, students have a loud, strong, and super influential voice. They are the, the future. Um, they have a lot to say. I would give them full First Amendment rights. That, that doesn't mean that they always get to say whatever they want, whenever they want, just like adults don't get to say what they want wherever and whatever they want, but um, to, to, to recognize them as full-fledged um, uh, participants in the Constitution and to get full constitutional rights, I, 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 that's, the, that's the stand I would take. But I just, my article was pointing out, we just haven't really seen that clear message from the court. 
I would largely agree with my new best friend. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely think that the courts have been struggling on these super complex, controversial issues as students have been struggling with these issues on how to deal with them in their, cla in their classrooms, on social media platforms, and with um, true authority figures. And I think courts need to be careful in how they're applying these standards. I think that they have been um, definitely over-promising in terms of their language as saying, students don't shed their rights when they enter the schoolhouse. Students do have our, the future, like it's, the opinions are ripe with that language, but when push comes to shove and when they actually have to decide, cases are largely deferential to school officials. And I think when it comes to the classroom, I argue that that can be a very good thing. But at the end of the day, you are giving great latitude to school officials in that situation. And by way of analogy, the reason why I um, wrote this speech on um, this particular case is that um, I'm Muslim and I definitely, when I was in high school, I would definitely walk in, realize that we were doing a curriculum on Islam, and my stomach would drop because I wasn't sure how the school, how my teacher would instruct on my own religion and how my classmates would react to my own religion. And that was a very scary thing to not have control over. So I think that students should be incorporated in the conversation a lot more. So I think that there are two really important principles that schools need to keep in mind, um, and they point a little bit in different directions, and it's some of the same stuff that higher education is dealing with too, that on the one hand, you really, schools really do need to be more intentional, intentional about leaving space for students to express their political views, right? So that there was that extreme example that I gave that was a real case where they said you can't talk about the election. But that just more generally, that when you have student speech that's expressing some sort of viewpoint about things that are political or social or religious, that there really needs to be room for students to do that in the classroom, both because it's important for them to be able to express it and for other students to learn how to deal with that, that this is sort of a training ground for going out into the world, so that's one thing. Um, and to the extent that one of the threads through the cases has been that it's really important whether there's some political aspect to the speech, as in Tinker, I think that's really important. And at the same time, I do think schools need to be mindful of making sure that individual students don't feel harassed or attacked. And that's just a problem that seems to keep getting worse and worse, and some of it is social media, and maybe some of it is just our society right now. but. I'm not a free speech absolutist because I do feel like students have to go to school. They're stuck together in close quarters, right? They're all exposed to each other in a way that adults aren't always. And so schools have to be in there kind of policing and making sure that things aren't going over the line where there's a particular student who feels so harassed that it really interferes with his or her education and willingness to go to school. And that can happen even from off-campus speech. Um, and so it's a constant, I think, balance that schools have to strike, leaving room for political speech, leaving room for dissent, but then also making sure it doesn't hit the point where a student, an individual student, feels victimized. Yeah, I mean, you could adopt one of the two poles with regard to student speech. You say they should have all the rights that people have in, say, a public park uh, to express themselves. That's not a workable standard. You could adopt Justice Thomas's view as an originalist. He says students should be seen and not heard. Uh, that they have no free speech rights um, under principles of in loco parentis. Um, neither of those is attractive, and so I think the middle, you know, balancing is inevitable here. And I'm, I'm critical of the disruption standard uh, in part because of how courts uh, apply it, right? And, and not just courts, how school administrators uh, apply it. And I think, I think part of the problem, a big part of the problem rests there. So I'll just share briefly one of the t-shirt vignettes. Uh, that I mentioned earlier, one of my favorites, a, a kid named Bretton Barber, who is a high school junior in Dearborn Heights, Michigan, uh, wore a t-shirt to his school with the picture of President Bush, this was back in 2003, and the words, international terrorist. Um, and he was told that he could not do that. He was sent home from school for wearing that t-shirt. So what did he do? First, he called the ACLU. Uh, but it being Washington's birthday, no one answered. <laughs> Next, he went on the internet to reread a Supreme Court case from 1969, 
Tinker versus Des Moines that supported students' freedom of expression. Then he called the Dearborn High School principal to talk about his constitutional rights, and then he called the news media. And he said, I wore this to express my anti-war uh, sentiment. So later on in the day, he talks with his principal, Judith Cobley, um, and their discussion revolves around the Tinker case. And she immediately asked him if he was familiar with the Supreme Court case, and he said, yes, I was. I was very familiar with it. She said it happened in 1969, and I said, no, it happened in 1965, but it got decided in 1969. <laughs> then she quoted directly from the dissenting opinion of Justice Black to say that the school has the right to control speech. I knew that that wasn't how the case came out, but I didn't argue with her. And I think what ultimately happened was that suspension was lifted and the school uh, you know, changed its mind, rightly so. But that's sort of the default uh, interaction between administrators and students, it seems to me, that that speech could be interpreted to be controversial, and so it has no place in the schools, and we have to get rid of it. Um, and I'm not saying they adopt Justice Black's view, but his view and his dissent was that the court had, in Tinker, subjected all the public schools in the country to the whims and caprices of their loudest mouthed, but maybe not their brightest students. And that's a dangerous attitude, uh, I think, for a justice to have, but certainly for a school administrator to have. So to end on a positive note, I think what Tinker's important for, uh, in addition to the rights that students have in school, no viewpoint discrimination and whatever other rights are, are enforced in their behalf, is that it has a, a legacy with respect to student activism. I mean, what you see today in terms of walkouts uh, with respect to gun violence, the March for Our Lives, right? I think you can trace all of that to Tinker. Uh, and I think that's a very positive legacy. All right, so I'd love to hear a couple of questions from the audience. And we can actually do, can we, is that? OK. Do we have a couple of questions from the audience? I don't understand. I mean, they're, they're not going to avoid a First Amendment problem by having an operational standard and sending kids home and telling them to change. That's not the conversation, by the way, I was talking about, which was more you allow the speech and you have a conversation, and maybe then they change their mind about wearing it. But, not, but I understand why that's problematic and blah, blah, blah. But just to clarify what I meant by that, uh, because it sounds like they are punishing the students, or at least they're not allowing that speech, and that's what triggers the conflict that, that Tim was just talking about, they don't allow the Bush International Terrorist T-shirt, that's the conflict, that's when the student calls the ACLU. So you could point that out to them, like you're gonna face the problem and why not come out strong and make it clear where you stand. Uh, if there are already students getting sent home, those students could already be calling 
um, lawyers. I agree. I was actually thinking, in a way, it's riskier for them not even to have a written policy because now they're sending people home. Then they challenge it. Now there's nothing in writing. Now the students can also right, say, this is arbitrary. You don't even have a rule, but now you're applying it to me, but not someone else. Once they're going to do it, they'd be better off having a clear yeah. Yeah. across the board. I'll take one more question. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I was pointing to um, Mary. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was going to say okay, in response to, to our last oh, yeah, comments. very quick, yeah. is that we see some of these cases, but this is just the, the surface of all the free speech suppression that happens, because who are the kids that end up suing? These are the kids who are privileged. These are kids who have um, parents who get involved. They tend to be wealthier. They tend to be white, well-educated kids. And there are so, much, so many other things that are happening. We, don't, we never even hear about it. Maybe Tinker's helpful because it's out there and to the extent educators learn about it, they might be less likely to restrict speech, but most students who find themselves um, with a speech restriction just have to do what the administrators say and a lawsuit is not really an option. All right, thank you very much to our panelists.